What's up, everyone? This is Rafael Garcia back with Schwan Humes for episode 100 and I think 31. We might be on 131. I'm not sure I lost count. And I think I didn't update the agenda for tonight. Either way, it's uh, episode 131 or episode 130. And actually, it is 131. Excuse me. Sorry. <laughs> sorry for all the back and forth. But either way, I finally figured that out. Schwan Humes, man, why don't you let everybody know how you're doing today? I'm doing okay. I've been uh, actually doing pretty good in the MMA realm. I've, I've had to stun on a couple of camps who did not come to me before their fighters fought on certain cards. Invicta, to be, to be exact. Some people got knocked out or embarrassed, and then they came to me after the fact, and I'm like, I can't help you after. I could have helped you before. Before is when you come to me, not after. I mean, that's, so. that's usually the case, man. Unfortunately, none of us have a time machine to go back and change things. So it's just kind of how, how stuff goes down and people really kind of see what they need to do to get the uh, job done. Hey, I'm just hoping next time, next time they make the call where I'm like, now that we've learned our lesson, we worked together for three or four fights, we were on a win streak. Now we lost one that was unnecessary. So hopefully we make that phone call. What did we learn? It's like talking to my kids. What did we learn from this? We call Shawan first. We don't make any decisions until Shawan has been consulted. That's the rule we're going with for now. Exactly, man. Give you that call first. Uh, let's hop into some stuff we had to talk about. Of course, and as always, we're going to talk about some news and start there. Then we're going to talk about some of the fights that we have coming up this weekend, give ourselves a little bit of a preview of UFC 241, which is scheduled for this weekend. But first and foremost, Juan, uh, let's go ahead and talk about probably the biggest bit of news, the most foolishness piece of news that came out today. Did you see the video of Conor McGregor punching that old man in the Dublin bar? I heard about the video. I, I could not bring myself to watch it because I'm like, if he really hit this dude, it's going to be hard for me to come back from this. So let me just scroll past it. And I'll, mean, just, I'll just... Yeah, he did strike the guy. So I'm just go ahead, go ahead and put it out there. Like, so what it looks like the situation is that the elderly gentleman and him, you can tell like they're having some type of conversation back and forth. And everyone is like, news is really kind of reporting that this incident occurred because of something about Conor McGregor's whiskey. I don't know if the guy was, wasn't taking a shot from him, whatever it may be. But you do see Conor hit him in the face. Uh, and it, some people are trying to claim, some of Conor's fans, of course, are coming to his, his defense, claiming that he threw the drink at the older gentleman. But from the way his head jerks, I've seen enough people get punched to kind of say, hey, that looks like more of a punch than anything else. But yeah, that is a situation. Then you see some of his entourage grab him up, drag him out, as they usually do. But it was too little, too late, because he already hit the guy. So now we have another, yet another situation with Conor McGregor causing a situ uh, causing an incident outside of a um, outside of a cage. Um, he's had probably about four or five of these now, and this is yet another one. Is is this clearly? It's not going to be it. But what are your thoughts about this? Is this going to become par for the course? Should we expect this guy to cause some type of incident like every six months or so? Well, the the first thing I want to say is it becomes clear to me that athletes of any sort, whether it's NBA, NFL, MMA, or boxing, you, you can tell they're not used to having money because they do things that don't match the tax bracket they fit into. I understand keeping it real. Even even showing up with the Khabib thing and running up on Khabib, I get that. That 
as the legend of Conor McGregor, that makes him more money moving forward. Assaulting an old man, smashing phones, threatening untrained people, that doesn't add to your legend. That doesn't make you look better. It makes you harder to it makes it harder to sell you, harder to sponsor you, harder to support you, and harder to market you. None of those things help. Now his popularity might make the blow to his career lessen, but it is good. It is going to have an effect. And I don't understand why. I'm not saying you should ever hit some stranger, old man. I'm not saying that. But if you wanted that dude hit, why didn't you get some goon in your some goon in your posse to do it? That way, it's someone connected to Conor McGregor. So we can't say that you you okayed it or you ordered it, it just happened to the guy. And you can say, I, I didn't order this, my guys got out of control, that guy disrespected me, my people reacted. You put some kind of buffer between yourself and the situation. Connor's acting like he's still broke. You can't, you can't act like a broke person and be worth tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions. I mean, even Mayweather, that's why Mayweather has bodyguards and he has other people, rough people up for him. Mayweather don't get in people's hands, faces. He doesn't touch people. And, and in one instance, it keeps Connor McGregor's name out there, so I guess if you think that no publicity is bad publicity, this is great. But I can't, I can't imagine this is going to help. Help. This doesn't help Connor because it's a bad look, and it doesn't help people who are supporters of Connor. Because I did see people on Twitter trying to justify whatever he did, and it's like when you're dealing with an elderly person or a woman. No, I'm not saying they're the same. There's never going to be a justification for seeing you striking them, throwing a drink in their face, pushing them, shoving them. Nobody's going to want to hear it, even if it makes sense. Nobody's going to want to hear it, and I, and I don't understand why he keeps finding himself in these situations that should really be left to people who are like poor, maybe lower middle class, if not poor, like you can't be worth that much money in doing these kind of things. Like you should just be beyond that. And I don't, I don't understand how he hasn't moved beyond that given the money he's made and the success he's had. What's interesting, I mean, I didn't look and see what uh, Dana White said. To be honest, I am not interested in following the, the fallout from this because we all know nothing is going to come from this. I mean, he had the incident where he smashed a guy's phone in Florida. He had the Dolly incident. He had the jumping over the cage incident at Bellator. He had the other Dublin fight incident. He was, last we heard, he was being investigated for rape allegations. So, I mean, the list just keeps going on and on. And I'm kind of at the point where it's like, we need to, we know that he's not going to be punished for this. We know that. So this isn't really even a talking point that deserves that much of a conversation. It's just another blip on the radar that's going to continue to grow. Yeah, unfortunately. And, um, you know, I mean, nowadays, it's, you know, I'm always, at some point, I'm almost interested to hear what Dana has to say because he lets so many other things slide. It's kind of, I kind of like to kind of build track and kind of keep notes on what he's saying and what's allowable and what's not and what's despicable and what's not. So eventually when somebody crosses some line who doesn't make him money and he drops a hammer on him, we have a direct quote we can point to and be like, okay, this dude's hitting old men. He's fighting UFC. This guy who doesn't sell called someone a name and you're kicking him out? You know, just to, just, just to keep the consistency of his hypocrisy alive. Because a lot of guys like to let him slide because they want access to UFC and they don't want to offend him. I wouldn't be that guy. And I just like to keep track of things just so I can notice and show other people the escalating level of hypocrisy in his stances when it comes to punishment or taking stands. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, we're not going to see anything different from this. This is a situation that's going to continue to occur, and we're all just going to look at it and just kind of shake our heads like, you know, that's more par for the course. And once again, it's, it's Uncle Dana being, being Dana. I don't want to spend Let me much- ask you one question. Let me ask you one question, though. 
what do you what do you think it's gonna take for for what would it take for Dana to really have to respond? Like, would somebody have to die? With I mean, well, what would it take for him to really make a hard line stance against a money maker? Well, you know, there's a point in time where you would have said maybe it would take you know like an actual major domestic violent case, but we can't even really say that anymore because. Anthony Johnson's been accused a couple of times from his, I think his wife or um, his ex-wife. Uh, we know Greg Hardy's been signed. I think that is probably going to have to be almost like a situation where someone dies. Let's say there's like a DUI situation that causes a massive accident and someone dies from that. It'll have to be something along those lines for us to see him really take a stance. But what's funny, man, I always come back to this is you remember what uh, Miguel Torres got cut for the first time for that for the rape van joke? When you look back at that and the way Dana White responded, it's almost amazing to think that he responded that way to that situation and has never um, responded tough since. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's been very inconsistent in his, the overreactions and stuff. It's just, it's almost embarrassing, but I mean... Dan is just saying he's got the popularity on his side. He's got the machine behind him, and he talks over everybody. So he just gets to rewrite the record books any way he wants and explain things the way he wants, and people just accept it as truth, even though it's been repeatedly proven that it's not. Yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing that, that that's the case, and that's the state of the game that we're in right now. And speaking of people no longer being in the UFC, that brings us to the next talking point where I'm not surprised, but I may be just a little bit surprised where Kat Zingano was cut today. And she's the last woman to defeat uh, Amanda Nunez. And I kind of thought that that would always give her a place in the organization if she stayed active enough. But news broke today that she's been released. Uh, what do you think about the situation? And what is next for Kat Zingano? Well, there's a, there's a couple of things. One, it's funny. You know how Kat tried that flying knee against Ronda and she got finished? It's very funny because if she set that up a little bit differently, you know, that's the difference between Jorge Masvidal, highlight reel knockout, and the Katzengano, highlight reel submission loss. You know, just a few minor details. And that's going to be the story of Katzengano's entire career in the UFC. Minor details. Had physical durability, had physical strength, could hit for power had good enough skills as far as striking, could grapple, could ground and pound you, had good cardio, but she lacked the attention to detail. She lacked the strategic awareness and discipline to take advantage of the spots when she found herself in positive spots. And in most fights you saw, she was in the fight, then she would gas, she would overextend, she'd get into these stand-up exchanges, and then she would lose them. She'd lose winnable fights against ranked opponents. She was never getting blown out or just outright dominated. She just couldn't be consistently effective, technically, or in regards to strategy. And the worst example, the best example of this is her fight with Megan Anderson. Against Megan Anderson, when Megan Anderson lost to Holly Holm, what did Holly Holm do? Take her down, grind her out, rough her up. When Megan Anderson lost to uh, the one who just got beaten by Cyborg, I cannot remember her name for the life of me right now. But um, uh, you said, she got um, submitted. Felicia Spencer. Felicia Spencer. Felicia got minors exchanges on the feet and took her down and submitted her right away. The only win that Megan Anderson has in the UFC is Kat Zingano, who for some reason, for the first time in her life, decided she's going to kickbox with somebody. If Kat Zingano just goes up there, double legs her, puts her on her back, she could have grounded, and pounded, and submitted or finished Megan Anderson. That would have been two wins in a row for Kat, and she would have been either fighting Amanda Nunes or Cyborg 
for a title. That's how close she was. All she had to do was get that win, and she would have been right in that position for a justifiable shot. Given as thin as the Bantamweight and Featherweight divisions, she could have got a title shot with one of them. And it would have been big against Amanda Nunes. It's the girl who's already beaten Nunes. Against Cyborg, it's the girl who's already beaten the Bantamweight champion. Now she's moving up to take the Featherweight champion. She had a storyline, and she had success in her hands. But once again, and through Katzengano fashion, she didn't maximize her physical abilities and her skills, and she fought a dumb fight doing a distance kickboxing match with a tall, long kickboxer. That, that's Katzengano in a, in a nutshell for you. Great abilities, great mindset, lack of attention to detail, lack of strategic discipline and poise. And that, that's basically what got her out of the UFC. She could have beaten Juliana Pena. She could have beaten all these other people, Jess Guy, whoever she fought. She could have beaten them. But she just could never make the necessary adjustments to maintain leads or to gain leads in fights. And that's why she's out. She has a look. She's exciting. She has an interesting backstory. But the fact of the matter is this is the fight business. And if you're not generating millions of dollars, you being interesting and you having a look is not going to keep you in the biggest organization in the world. It's just hard to. And um, I feel bad, but I think she'll get picked up. And I think there'll be... Each, each division she competes in is thin enough where she can get wins. She's a good enough athlete. She's tough enough. And she can, against a lower class of opponent, I expect her to put two or three wins together. But her being cut by the UFC, it's not shocking to me. I, I figured it was going to become sooner or later. It's shocking to me that Jessica I still has a job because she lost a lot more than Kat Zingano. <laughs> and she still got a whole chance and fought in another weight division and fought for a title. So that's kind of, that's more shocking to me than Kat Zingano getting cut. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty interesting to see who they decide to cut and win. Uh, that's definitely like the power. That is the power of being in charge of the, I guess, the business side of um, the UFC. So where do you think she goes next? Uh, does she go to Invicta? Do Bellator pick her up? What about the PFL? I think that they're really trying to uh, get some more women into that group to um, not necessarily feed to Kayla Hander, uh, Harrison because I think she's too big. She fights at 55. She's way too big for um, Zinganu. But where do you think she shows up next? Well, at the PFL, those girls are all bigger. But those girls have not, most of those girls, even Kayla Hander, Harrison, hasn't fought anybody within light years of the athletic ability of the opponents Kazagano's fought or the technical ability or the skill set. I mean, the, the gap in skill and experience between Katz and Ghana, who's only fought once a year in the past three years, and the level of experience and skill and the people in the PFL, we're talking about light years. I don't know that there's – those girls are 155. I don't know that any girl except for Harrison doesn't get taken down and just beaten the hell up on the ground by Katz and Ghana. Because, I mean, it, there's just such a gap. I don't, I don't know if the schedule fits her because she'd have to fight quite a bit, and she hasn't really fought a lot in the past couple of years, not con- not, not multiple fights in a year. It's been it's been a while before she's really done that consistently. So I don't know if the PFL works for her. maybe Bellator, Risen. I mean, even one. Like I said, she fights in bantamweight and she fights in featherweight. Those are really two two talent talent. I don't know. D- d- they just they, they lack a lot of talent. So either division she, she can compete in. She's already competed against the best in the world, which is the UFC, and their girls aren't even that good. So what's she gonna do outside of the UFC? I, I can't. Name too many fighters I've seen at Featherweight and Invicta or at, or at Bellator who I really say are better athletes than Cash, who hit harder than her or better conditioned to her or who are better skill sets and fought better opposition than her. I mean, outside of anybody outside the UFC, I'd, I'd almost have to favor her against, you know, even given the streak 
she's been on, she's been doing it against world-ranked quality opponents. A lot of these girls have been beating up on soccer moms and girls who are two and three and three and one in their careers. And as faded as Cat is, experience, in my opinion, matters. And that's enough to beat a lot of these younger girls coming up who, who haven't developed their games. They don't have an identity as fighters. And they have no idea how they'll respond in tough situations. And Kat Zagano is guaranteed to put you in at least one or two t- really tough situations every fight you get into with her. I mean, if you tell me Pam Sorensen could beat Kat Zagano, I don't know if I believe that. Nothing against Pam. I'd have to see her beat Kat before I go, even though I'm always betting against Kat recently because of how she's performed. I'd have to see Pam beat her before I'd say that she can beat Kat Zagano, just based off a of level of opposition. I, I couldn't and- do it. Since we've been talking about uh, the depth that are that are in that, or isn't in some of the women's divisions, you mentioned Jessica I, but let's talk about the next potential contender for Valentina Shevchenko. Did you see that there's a fight book for Jennifer Maya, potential fight books for Jennifer Maya and Caitlin Trukagian at UFC 244, which I think that the next title challenger is going to come out of these two women here. What are your thoughts about this fight here? And is this a path for either one of these two ladies to face off against Shevchenko? Or are we looking at a situation where there's no one else? Well, it is a path because, I mean, Maya, Maya's got really good wins in the division. I think, what did she beat? Liz, Liz, no, Liz, she lost Liz Camus. She beat someone else. Then she beat Roxanne Mataferi. Those are pretty good wins. Caitlin Chukagan's only got one loss, and that, that's at the last title contender. Now, now, you look at the fight overall and how you project how they do against Valentina, it's, it doesn't look very good, at least initially. But against each other, whoever wins that fight pretty much is at the head of the pack. You can't put Rostam, Roxy Matafari in there. She's lost too much recently. You can't put – Valentina's not going to fight her sister, so she's out, of the, she's out of the window. Who's there, Rachel Ostovich? No, that's not going to work. Paige Van Zandt, she's hasn't fought. I mean, who who in there has been active enough and looked good, good enough where you could justify them having a title shot next? I, I don't know who else is out, out there. I yeah, mean, I mean, yeah. There, there really isn't anyone else. And the only thing is... Joanne Cal- they wanted they wanted Calderwood. They wanted Calderwood and that girl Lipsky. They wanted her, they wanted them to come out, but they've both been on skids. And the only people who've been winning haven't looked good enough to justify a shot at Valentina. So it's got to be one of those two. And, and Maya is considered one of the better people in the weight class. So if Maya beats Chukagian, that fight makes some sense to me as far as quality of opponent, who they've beaten, and the skills they've shown on their way to getting to the position they're in at. Chukagian's a li- little bit tougher to sell. Chukagian seems like tailor-made for either a brutal knockout or a, a fairly one-sided, uneventful win. True. I, I mean... I feel the same way as you do with this division here. It and what's unfortunate is that I am excited for all any opportunity that the women can get on the roster, but it's it's hard to build a division that people want to see when you don't have viable contenders for her to face off against. I, I think we're in a situation if people it's like. In, I, no one's going to see it this way because I, I kind of the, the conversation has already been starting about if Valentina is going to be a dominant champion like Mighty Mouse, and I already hear conversations making excuses for her that were different than DJ. And we know what we know the situations here. We're talking about a European white woman, blonde woman versus a, a black male. And, same. And wait, same, let's let's just, let's just clarify. We don't we don't have anything against Valentina. 
we think she's fine. She's good sportsman. She seems like a good human being. This isn't directed towards her personally. This is systematic. This isn't individual. Exactly. Just, this is, this I, I wanna, is very systematic. I want to clarify that because people people might get it mixed up with us because we seem like we're picking on her. We're talking about the system. We're not talking yeah. about Valentina. Valentina's at the front of the system. We have no problem with Valentina the person. Sorry, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, like she's definitely like she's going to dominate this weight class. We see that she's a good fighter. She she's can a fight. fantastic we fighter. I mean, people. I I I still cringe at the idea that people claim she should be the the best woman's fighter in the world, as if she beat Amanda Nunez, who beat her twice. But that's neither here nor there. At flyweight, she's going to dominate this weight class, um, and we see that coming. But you cannot ignore the fact that that weight class, if people thought the men's division was not deep, there's no way in hell you can look at me and not have that same criticism for the women's flyweight division and then use that same criticism against the champion like they did for DJ. There was always, oh, well, he needs to go up and fight uh, Dominic Cruz or he needs to go up and fight Dominic Cruz again. Then when TJ won the belt, oh, he needs to go up and fight TJ. That that criticism was always used against DJ to discount his accolades. Well, if we have Valentina, who's going to dominate flyweight the same way, she's already fought the champion twice and lost to her two times. So how is it different? How is the conversation different for her than it was for Mighty Mouse? I only see two differences. One, one, one is a male. The other is a... Um, female and the situation is never going to play out the uh play out the uh, same well that you know what and 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 we can the, the european thing is important but i feel like i have to also point out the fact that she is a woman and given the climate we live in now it's like when you were when ronda was on top and and people would give legitimate criticism of ronda people would say you're hating you're threatened by a woman Ronda's better. Ronda can beat Uriah Faber. Ronda can beat this person up. She can beat this man up. There's welterweights Ronda can submit. And, and I'm sitting over here like, that's not true. Let, let's not. If Ronda boxed Floyd Mayweather, she beat Floyd's ass. That's not true. Come on now. Like, I'm all for it. She's independent. She's strong. She's skilled. All these women are very talented. But sometimes statements get to be made because they're falling on the side of this argument. Just like there's certain things they have to go against. And men don't because they're women. There's certain avenues there's certain things that get rewarded that men wouldn't. There's certain fights I've seen in women's fights, and they're like, it's so exciting, it's a war. If it would have been two men, they would have said, that's terrible technique, that's awful. It's just a different, it's a different bar as far as how you see the fighters, how they get treated, the money they get paid. If you're in a women's division, you win two or three fights, you might be in line for a title match. There's some men's divisions where guys have won six and seven fights in a row, and they're not even ranked in the top seven. So it's, everything, everything gets put on the table when you're comparing why one fighter gets treated one way and one fighter gets treated another. Because men's divisions and women's divisions are completely different as far as the makeup, the skill level, and the amount of legitimately world-class people in each division. Yeah, very true, man. Very true. Let's move on and let's uh, focus on our preview for UFC 241. Wait, wait. Because oh, wait, even... one second, one second. Can, can I say one thing? Go ahead. I, I like Liz Carmouche. She's a great, has a great story. Seems like a great fighter, carried herself as a pro, served our country. But if Liz Carmouche really believes that it's Valentina's fault, that this fight wasn't exciting, she needs to seek help. Her, her, team, her team did what they were supposed to. They minimized the damage. They kept her from getting highlight reel knocked out. They kept her from getting really beaten up or really 
really embarrassed as far as being outclassed, like tossed left and right, hit with pot shots, thrown all over the ring and dominated. But they did not come up with a game plan that would help her win. Anytime your game plan is 100% dependent on a person who is known for their poise, sticking to a game plan and technical craftsmanship, when your game plan is based around them making a mistake or them fighting out a character, it's a bad game plan. She had no idea how to make Valentina fight out a character. She had no idea how to make Valentina take chances. She had no idea how to force a fight with Valentina. Or better yet, she had an idea. They didn't take that route because they knew the risk of taking that route, and they didn't want to face any of those risks. They came to win if they could, in my opinion, but most likely survive without getting highlight reel KO'd or getting seriously hurt. We know the route to make an exciting fight with Valentina, the same route that Chad Mendes took when he decided he'd make an exciting fight with Jose Aldo. What did Brian Stan say? You want to make the champion work? This is how he works. Just guys showed what happened when you try and make Valentina work. Even, even Amanda Nunes doesn't want to come out balls to the wall and make Valentina Shevchenko work. She fought a slow-paced fight. Liz Carmouche followed that routine because she figured... Maybe Valentina would overextend, go for a head and arm throw, do something stupid would allow her to get in a position, win a round, win points, or possibly finish Valentina. And that never happened. I'm not saying Carmouche's team is bad. They seem very intelligent. They've done good work with Elimile McFarlane. They're very experienced and tenured. But all I'm saying is they were out of their depth because they both had no technical idea how to create openings for her. And B... They were unwilling to tell her the truth about what she needed to do to have any chance at winning a round or doing any real damage, which was bite down and take chances. You're going to have to risk getting knocked out to get any work done against this girl. And she was never willing to take that risk. And her corner kept lying to her, saying, you're doing perfect. You're winning the fight. What fight they're watching, I don't know. And I'm not some idiot slack jaw fan who just types on his keyboard, doesn't know what he's talking about. I work with world-class fighters. I work with world-class coaches. What they were doing, great plan to survive. Great plan to save brain cells. Terrible plan for winning. And nobody's going to talk me off of that plan. Talk me off of that hill of saying that is a terrible plan for winning. Awful. Terrible work in that. As far as that went. As far as winning. As far as surviving and not getting beat up. Great work. Excellent. As far as winning. Awful. Yeah, man. It was definitely a, the type of fight that just happened, and wasn't. It wasn't. There wasn't a lot to really kind of take from that and be excited about she wants a rematch the future uh, yeah i saw that and there's no way in hell she gets that fight unless if she tears through like the next five contenders in a row or something like that like she, she'd have to win do- every single one by knockout yeah her fighting style doesn't necessarily put her in a position to make that demand her lack of skill that's what we talked about before i said she wants to win she's got to take chances because the gap of skill is so wide all the little things she uses to get strikes off or to get land shots they're not going to work against Valentina. They won't work consistently. They'll work in spots, but Carmouche doesn't hit hard enough to turn a fight around with one body kick or one punch. So she has to take chances to make her fight. And if you do that, there's a good chance you're going to leave, you're going to leave out on a stretcher. She didn't want to leave out on a stretcher, which is, her, which is her option. I don't want to leave out on a stretcher either, but I'm not paid to fight professionally. That's different. So let's talk about some more people that are paid to fight professionally at UFC 241, where we have a hell of a card in front of us. It's kind of crept up on us, to be honest, because I haven't really been, I've been paying attention, but I haven't been paying attention too much until I took the time to look at the whole card as, um, as I prepared for the show today. And there's a lot to really pick out from. Um, let's, let's start with the main event where 
we have Daniel Cormier and Stipe Miocic fighting in a rematch for the UFC heavyweight title. Uh, let's see what your thoughts are about that fight there, because this is an important fight for a lot of different reasons. And we're going to talk about that in a second, but just start with your overview of how you see this fight going down. Well, the first thing I would say is when they first fought, I picked Stipe because, and I, I know Stipe's trainer. I know one of his trainers, I know some people in his camp and I picked him not because I know them, but to me, the fight was simple. Stipe is the better striker. He's the better as far as conditioning and youth and, and, and have a versatility, versatility as far as his striking and defensive awareness, he was the better fighter. It was all a matter of Stipe using his length, front kicks, leg kicks, feints, jabs, long right hand to keep Daniel Cormier using and using your footwork, keep him in the center of the cage, keep turning him, keep feinting him, make him overreact, and pick him apart. Not necessarily look for the knockout. The knockout might come, but pick him apart, force him to overextend like he did with Ginger Jones, walk him into something big, put him away. What happened is, and I'm aware of the eye gouges, but I have to just go by what happened. What happened is Stipe got overaggressive and kept closing the distance on Daniel. And Daniel's trying to get distance because once he gets the distance on you, he can get those underhooks. He can control. He can fight for wrist control. He can work body shots. He can work uppercuts. He can work short hooks to the inside, manipulate your hands, clear a path for his shots to get through. And that's what happened. Stipe was fighting Daniel in a range that favored Daniel because it was basically in a, off a wrestling exchange that Daniel got that shot in the KO him. At a distance, Cormier doesn't have anything for Stipe. Not jab-wise, not kicking-wise, not footwork-wise, not defense-wise. It, it's, really, it's really easy work on paper. But once the fight gets in boxing range or in phone booth range, now you have some problems because Cormier can, has a lower level of gravity. He can move Stipe around. He can threaten with the takedowns. He can tie him up into clinches, underhooks. He can spin around, control his body, put him off the cage, pivot, turn him around, open up shots. And that's where Stipe doesn't want to be. The fight, to me, is really simple. If Stipe can control range, keep Daniel on the back foot, and make Daniel get desperate and come lunging forward with takedown attempts or huge punches, Stipe can walk him in the shot and KO him. He can't look for the KO. He just has to set it up, set it up, even if it's a boring fight. Win the boring-ass fight and get your belt back. But what, what happened is... You, some people say Daniel gouged him. Daniel's going to say, I just walked him down. Either way, when Daniel got his chance to get inside, Daniel went to work on Stipe. And we can argue many things, but the fact of the matter is, Daniel took Stipe's shots fairly well. Stipe could not take Daniel's shots. I'm not saying he's chinny. I'm not saying he can't take a shot. But the fact of the matter, this wasn't a close decision. This wasn't a submission win. This was a you were knocked out, could not defend yourself win for Daniel Cormier. And I'm, I'm really... To me, like I said, the fight's real simple. Use the limb, use the movement, use the feint, mix in some kicks to kind of throw to throw Cormier off because his defense is real reactionary. So you can guide him into stuff. You can make him, you can discipline him. You can teach him this is coming and then walk him right into another shot. Same thing Jones did with the head kick. But the thing about it is you have to be disciplined. You can't get into heavy exchanges with them. You can't stay on the inside with them. Not because you're physically unable to, but because it's just dumb. You don't fight the guy in the spot that gives him the best chance to win. You keep the distance, you keep the range, you pick him apart, you make him chase, you make him work for everything, and you just chip him up. But I don't know that Stipe can do that. I know he can, I don't know that he will. I think he might be coming out to prove a point. I think he might be coming out for gunning for the KO to teach Daniel a lesson or show everybody, shut everybody up and all that other nonsense. And if he does that, I really could see Daniel winning this fight again. 
Daniel shouldn't win this fight. He shouldn't have won the first one. But if Stipe, one thing Daniel has is he's in good condition and he has poise. He's going to stick to his game plan. He's not going to panic and he's not going to give up. He's not going to start fighting your fight just because his fight is taking a little bit longer to get into. He's going to stick to what he's trying to do, whether he's winning or losing. And he's just going to adapt to find a way to get to the point where he's winning. Stipe got away from his game plan totally. And I, I understand he got gouged in the eyes. But the fact of the matter is he was already getting into heavy exchanges with Daniel in spots that Daniel wanted to be in. And that shouldn't have happened. Daniel doesn't have the footwork to make that happen. He doesn't have the striking to make that happen. So this is this is a toss-up for me. It's very likely that Daniel knocks him out again. I, I'm not joking. It's very likely. He has a clean knockout win over Stipe. And if Stipe says that doesn't bother him or he's not aware of that, I don't believe him. And I don't be, think that's a smart way to approach this fight. So let's talk about a few different things that, that you said there. Are you, I'm not honestly, are you discounting, um, are you discounting Stipe and his ability to win this fight? Because I think, in my opinion, I think he's going to fight completely differently than he did the first time. I think he's going to fight a much more intelligent battle. Uh, I think he's going to use his range better. I think he's going to do a lot of things that work that will work for him more effectively on this card than he did the last time they fought because I believe that he knows he has more to lose this time around. What do you think he should immediately change in his strategy to get this win? I don't think he has to change anything except not to fight Daniel where he wants to be fought. When when he fought when Daniel fought John Jones, John was getting bombed on. He was just covering up, trying to reestablish his range and set, setting up attacks to eventually led to the KO with DC. When he fought the first time, DC would get inside, he'd tie him up, but he'd be looking to punish him on the inside and reestablish his range. He wasn't trying to just hang out and grind with him the whole time. He wanted to show that he could, but in, in doing that, he was very careful to not let Daniel tee off on him and get free shots and dictate where the fight was happening. If I'm Stipe, I don't want to engage Daniel where he wants to be engaged at. And, that, and those wrestling exchanges and those tie-ups the levels difference between them is light years. Daniel in the first fight wasn't getting anything done at range. But once they got in boxing range and Daniel got his hands on him, Daniel had success. When Daniel was able to pressure him and come in really hard and get his hands on him, Daniel had success. That happened in the first fight. And I just thought Steve would just reestablish the range and start chopping, chopping away at Daniel, chopping away at Daniel, break him down, break him down. If it's not exciting, it's not exciting. You're here to win. You're the, the, the most successful defenses of the title. You're, Consider one of the most dominant heavyweights of all time. You don't want to go out and get knocked out by a light heavyweight, an overweight light heavyweight, do you? And that's what he proceeded to do. It's really simple to me. Use your long-distance weapons. Faint. Turn Daniel. And basically, just show some poise and composure and break him down. Don't allow Daniel to get to the spots he wants to get to to fight. Daniel Cormier is only effective in two or three spots as far as consistently effective against high-level opponents. Don't let him get to those spots. Make him pay a price for being in those spots. If he does that, it's easy money. But he had all the momentum. He had all the money on him. He had all the confidence the first time, and he wasn't able to do that. Now he's got real pressure on him because if he loses again, it's problems. It's problems as far as his bargaining position with the UFC. It's problems as far as his career moving forward because Daniel's probably going to retire. So he knocks out, you lost twice to a guy who couldn't knock out John Jones. You went from being the dominant, most dominant 
heavyweight champion of all time to a guy who got KO'd twice by an over 40-year-old, slightly overweight, light, blown up, light heavyweight? I mean, this, this is a big... If Daniel loses, this doesn't take anything off him. Most people don't think of Daniel as super dominant. They think of him as a number two. So they'll, they'll go back to thinking of him as a great number two. But if Stipe loses, he can say legacy and money doesn't matter anything to him. Good. I hope it doesn't matter. Because if he loses again, his legacy will take a hit and his money will take a hit. So I hope it doesn't matter to him. Because if it does and he loses his fight again, it's, it's big problems. And he hasn't fought in over a year. I'm, it, it, it's just a lot. It's a lot to overcome. So let's talk about what the outcomes mean for both individual in this fight. Because we're talking about two guys who right now could be considered the greatest heavyweight fighters of all time. You have one man, the only guy who's defended the title three times. And then you have the man who beat him and is a former light heavyweight title challenger. And, so, and, and Strike Force Grand Prix champion. Correct. And Strike Force Grand Prix champion. I always forget about that. Is this a fight where the winner who comes out of this is categorically the greatest heavyweight fighter of, of all time? If Daniel beats him twice, I have to move. I mean, his resume isn't super good, but he beat he beat the man twice. And if he knocks him out twice, I mean, who who's beating Fedor? Who what heavyweight has beaten Fedor twice dominantly? What heavyweight has beaten another top end heavyweight just clearly, concisely beating them? Dominantly two times in a row. It rarely happens. Kane over Junior, um, Fedor over Noguera. It it rarely happens like that. And and Stipe's at his peak. Stipe's in his prime. So Daniel's doing this. Is he's on a steep decline physically. He's a steep decline athletically. I mean, he has back. He has all sorts of problems. If he does this back to back, it's going to put him at least in the conversation. You know, people start asking, what, do, what what would prime Daniel Cormier versus Fedor look like? And to be honest. Daniel's kind of in that Fedor mold. He doesn't look dangerous. He doesn't look as threatening and skilled as he does. He looks like a slight. He looks like an overweight guy who's got very good grappling, world class grappling, and knockout power. Who else is that? He's basically the white Fedor. He's the opposite. He's loud and he's brash and he's obnoxious, but he's still a heavyweight, short, small heavyweight, short guy, big power, good athleticism, world class grappling. If I told you that and I took out the loudmouth part, who would you think I was talking about? It's Fedor. It's basically the same same recipe for success. So if he wins this, I fully expect people to have those legends match talk and what if this happened and what if that happened because uh, Cormier will have beaten the guy who's the, the most dominant heavyweight champion and done, done so in the fashion. He didn't have to knock him out. If he wins a tight decision, his point is still made. There's, there's, Daniel has nothing to lose in this fight. Stipe has a lot to lose in this next fight. Interesting thoughts there, sir. Let me ask you one final question about this before we move on to one of our next fights to talk about here. Um, if Daniel Cormier loses, do we see the trilogy or do we see him go back down to 205 to fight John? I, I, don't, I don't think he, he goes. I don't think he, I think he's just done. I don't see the point of it. I mean, I don't think John wants to fight. I don't think DC wants to fight. I don't. I, I really don't see the point of it because right now he's in. A, he's thinking about his career moving forward. Every fight with John ends up being really crass, really tasteless, really tacky, really over the top, rude, and the comments they make towards other and the comments they make towards each other's camp. I think DC should just be beyond that. He lost twice. No shame in losing to the very best in the world. Ask Patrick Ewing, Charles Barkley, and Carl Malone. They did it too. 
Ask Mar- Marcos Maidana, Floyd May- Oscar De La Hoya, and Juan Manuel Marquez. They did it too. There's no shame in losing to one of the best a generational talent. It's going to happen. He, he acquitted himself great in both fights. He was competitive. He didn't win, but he was very competitive. He did things that other people ha- hadn't done against those guys. And outside of those fights, he was a world champion in light heavyweight. He was a world champion in, in heavyweight. He was a Grand Prix champion in heavyweight. He, he's made a name for himself. Going back into that deep end is something he doesn't need to revisit. He needs to move on with his career, move on to the next stage, and move on to it gracefully and with class. And every time John Jones or Daniel Cormier talks about John Jones or fights him, the last two things you think about is class and dignity. Those go out the window against those guys because they hate each other. I don't think he needs to revisit that. I think he just needs to maybe fight a go-away fight and win or just retire. But the Jones fight, I, I don't have any interest in seeing it. What's the point? Interesting, man. Like you, you're one of the only individuals saying that. Most people are saying that they would like to see that fight for a third time. I'm kind of with you because it just it doesn't. If let's say they do fight a third time and uh, Cormier wins, it just creates too many talking points around them fighting a fourth time and then a fifth time. I, I'm just not. I'm not here for that. I would like to see. Do I want to see John Jones fight a heavyweight? Yeah, potentially. I think there's some opportunity for some intriguing matchups there. But overall, I'm just not here for this rehashing once again. It's not like the, um, oh man, Vasquez uh, Pacquiao um, series where that had some compelling fights and compelling victories by both men. It's just not that. It's just not that style of rivalry to me. Yeah, it's 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 not just that. And like I said, I'm thinking of his career moving forward. What does bringing up bringing that? I, I remember Michael Bisping said something about a retirement fight or some other fight before, and he was like, "I'm just glad I didn't have to fight certain people because it brings out a side of me that I'm not always proud of and, and doesn't sell well moving forward if it's your last fight." Luckily, I fought GSP, and I I put on a I was kind of a jerk, but for the most part, I got to be maintain some sort of dignity, some poise, some maturity, and against certain guys, I wouldn't have shown that. Win winning, I wouldn't, and especially if I lost. It's just a step backwards. Sometimes you just have to accept things for what they are and move forward and make the best of them. That's the point I feel Daniel's at right now. True. I can definitely agree with that. Definitely agree with that. Um, let's talk about the co-main event where we have one Nate Diaz making his return to the UFC and he is facing off against Anthony Pettis in a welterweight of affair. What are your thoughts about this fight here from every aspect of it? First, let's start with the style, and then we'll move on from there to cover it from other spaces. But what are your thoughts about this fight? Um, it's a fight that, I mean, it's the kind of fight that gets fans excited because Anthony Pettis is one of the bigger names in the UFC. Nate Diaz is still probably one of the top five, probably closer to the top three names in the UFC. So it's one of the few fights you could get Nate Diaz to come out of hiding to actually take. Fighting Tony Ferguson was never going to do it. Fighting anybody else. Nate wants a fight that's A, winnable, and B, a fight that is going to bring lots of attention and get give him the opportunity to be engaged in an exciting fight that'll draw fans' attention and give him an opportunity to show that he still moves the needle. Because if he moves the needle with Anthony Pettis, once again, that puts the ball back in his court as far as his value and his appeal to not just fans, but his value to the casual fans. And that's what he, I think he really wants to do. He wants to reassert his value to the UFC. Like, hey, y'all forgot what kind of attention I bring to y'all. You forgot how much your hits and your sights get looked into 
when I'm fighting. You forgot how many people will pay just to see me flip the bird and throw a billion punches out there. Um, as far as Anthony Pettis, I get why he takes this fight. Even though Nate's not ranked at welterweight, it's pretty much one of the biggest fights you can take outside in, in the lower weight classes outside of fighting Connor. Nobody has, maybe Justin Gaethje or Cowboy Cerrone has somewhat of a, enough of a fan base and an appeal to really generate some kind of interest outside of just the hardcores. It's, but fighting Anthony Pettis is pretty much, Anthony Pettis fighting Nate Diaz is probably the best thing he can get outside of fighting a Conor McGregor or a uh, maybe Donald Cerrone or Justin Gaethje in the lightweight division. There's still a big gap between all those guys, but those are the guys who, if you're fighting them, that's going to make people stand up at attention for that kind of fight. So I get why Anthony Pettis is doing it. It's a chance for him to fight a guy who's closer to his size, possibly get an impressive win, and use the, the, the focus and attention from that win to springboard him into maybe a title shot or springboard him into the top five. He's hoping maybe he can navigate the welterweight division and get the right matchups that are going to allow him to maybe make a run at the title or at least position himself to get big paydays through sponsorships and other stuff that comes as a result of beating on big cards and being a big draw. From the 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 only the uh, excuse me the thing that stood out to me the most actually is probably the most comical is the way that this fight was made where basically both camps called each other up said we wanted this fight and then 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 they turned around and contacted the UFC to get the fight made I think that's fantastic and I love how they did that from a business standpoint I could see why this fight will be is lucrative for the UFC but I don't think the there isn't. I would hate to see this fight happen and neither man get paid their just due. I wrote a piece about this um, earlier in the week where I was wondered if Nate Diaz's uh, ability to be a big financial draw has passed him by because we're at a time now where this Fox deal puts money in the UFC's pockets in a way that allows them to play hardball with men like Brock Lesnar and Conor McGregor. So much so that it has almost pushed them out of the negotiating table. Nate Diaz, he wants to get paid as well, too. That's why that Tyron Woolley fight fell apart. And I wonder if this is one of the last moments where we see what his drawing power is. And I'm really, A, what his drawing power is, and B, what the UFC is willing to pay him. I can't wait to see the payouts from this fight. I wonder how, what his, his uh, paycheck going to look like. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the UFC wants their, they want their pay-per-views to do well, because so far they haven't really, and it, it's made it hard it's made it seem like they're more dependent on the ESPN and they're not as big an asset. If they can generate interest that assert the UFC still has some power, some star power, some ability to market and make money. But at the same instance, once you see that certain cards sell more than others, that puts certain fighters in a position that, that, that reminds people that certain fighters still can call their shot. And while that's not great for all the other fighters because they're just average Joes, it's great overall for fighters in general because it's like, hey, if you can get to a certain point, even though the UFC has this setup, you still can carry some weight. If you get the right matchup or you get a big enough name, you can still matter. They can't just bully you because when it comes down to it, you, you still impact numbers. And at the end of the day, the ESPN, ESPN and the UFC wants numbers. I mean, the ESPN wants content, but if they can get highly rated content, that's what they want. And the UFC wants money if they can get more money because they've exceeded a limit or they've hit their certain goals, then they want that too. And and this if Nate can generate if they sell well, part of it's gonna be a large part to Nate Diaz. 
And that's going to put the ball back in his court as far as him being able to tell the UFC, F off, don't come to me until you have a money fight for me, or him being able to dictate who he fights or, or calling his shot as far as the title shot. That's very true there, sir. Very true. Who do you think wins this fight, though? Uh, I, I would like to say Nate, because I think to a certain degree, he's a, in a sense, he's a, he's kind of like a Max Holloway. He should be able to, he should be able to do what Max Holloway does. The thing about Nate is his skill set is a little bit limited. He's more of a boxer than an all-round kickboxer. And even though he's good defensively and he's good with his counters and he's good with his leads, the fact of the matter is his offense gets a little predictable because the kicking game is sporadic and it's limited in what he uses. And he doesn't really, he's not a wrestling threat, not consistently. He's a grappling threat, but he's not really a wrestling threat. So it makes him a little bit predictable. And the biggest problem I see in this fight is he likes to work. He used to be a pressure fighter. That wasn't working for him. He's not as durable as Nick. I don't know if his cardio is as good as Nick, especially in tough fights. He likes to fight on the outside, beat you up from a distance, and then walk in and kind of overwhelm you, set you up for submission, whatever you want to call it. But working in the outside is going to expose him to Pettis's kicks and Pettis's single shot. And Pettis can't put combinations together very well, but he can throw one or two huge power shots, capable of dropping anybody. And if Nate's going to be fighting at range and not really pressuring him, not really backing him up, that's when Anthony Pettis is fine. Anthony Pettis is having a hard time when guys really pressure him, really bully him, really chip him up and push him back because his defensive footwork is awful. His defensive technique is awful. But if you're going to give him a little bit of space and pressure him from the outside long, using long weapons, you're basically setting yourself up to be countered by his long punches and, more importantly, be countered by kicks to the leg, front kicks to the body, side kicks to the body. And even though Nate's been known for being durable and known for being able to set a pace and known for being able to drown people in volume, he hasn't had to do that in years. So strategically, I think he should be able to do it. But technically, and as far as what I've seen from him recently, I haven't seen anything from him. And the last time I saw him, I think it was against Connor, and even Connor was getting doing work with leg kicks. Even Connor was able to back him off and sit him down with, with singular shots. So it's not out of the it's not out of the realm that someone such as Anthony Pettis will be able to do something similar to him. It's just a matter of how much Nate has left. I really don't know. I, I want to say Nate because I think stylistically he should be able to generate enough offense to push Anthony back. Anthony's boxing defense is terrible. His boxing offense is worse. But I, I don't know what Nate has left at this point, and he hasn't fought in what two, three years. I mean. Under normal circumstances, I go with Nate right now, given the momentum and the activity and, and, and Pettis' legendary durability. I'm probably going to have to say Pettis can probably pull it out. You know, I might change my pick closer to the fight, but right now it's looking like Pettis has too many ways to win this fight. He's lost winnable fights before, but it looks like he has too many ways to win this fight against a guy who hasn't been active, and I can't guarantee he'll be sharp. So final question before we move on to our next fight, I want to talk about who or think about both men. If they both pick up a win on Saturday, who do you think they call out next? Uh, if Nate wins, he might call out Khabib. He might call out Khabib or Connor. That's the only thing I can think. Or he might say, F it, I'm the, I'm the effing show. You guys got to come to me. That's also a possibility. Um, if Anthony Pettis wins, I say he calls out probably Connor, probably calls out uh, Connor or Khabib. Probably saying guys, or if, I guess, yeah, because Khabib's got the belt. Probably the winner of uh, Khabib and Dustin or uh, Connor McGregor. One of, one of those three. And that same goes for Nate. 
True, true. Now I want to talk about uh, the fight that I'm kind of most excited about. I almost forgot about this fight. Uh, Yoel Romero and Paulo, Co- Paulo Costa. Uh, I think this is going to be... This, uh, man, as I was writing about this fight, I went back and watched some of their recent contests. And these two guys are just violent. But I think it's an interesting play off of one another because you have one guy who is very aggressive, so aggressive that he puts himself in bad positions in Costa. And then you have Romero, who is a not is like a killer when he's active. Like he doesn't throw a lot. So what do you think about this style matchup and who does it play more toward? Is this a situation where I think Romero is going to be the old guard that the young fighter can't get by, or is it Costa's time? Um, it's just a, I haven't really seen Costas again in bad style matchups. It, it's mostly been striking fights against guys who have some athletic ability, but don't necessarily have the durability to really take what he has to offer. And and that's that's been the biggest thing. He hasn't really had to face a guy who's trying to wrestle him. And he hasn't really had to face a guy who's got who's shown a chin comparable to what he has and physical strength and explosiveness. In, in any sort of grappling or, or clinch striking exchanges close to what he has. And in Romero, he's going to be facing an older version, but still a guy who's got a lot of world-class experience and who always has his grappling to fall back on as something to threaten which for the actual takedowns or something that just opens up strike striking attempts for him. And I, I haven't really seen Costa face a, du- a real dual threat, a dual threat who has enough athleticism to put him in spots that he doesn't want to be in and who can actually damage him when they're in these exchanges or when he gets his hands on him, can kind of manhandle him or bully him. He hasn't had to deal with that. He's usually been the boss when he fights. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens when he can't totally run somebody over or hit somebody with one shot and totally wipe him out. That, that's what I want to see. I want to see that adjustment from Costa. I want to see the poise. I want to see a depth of skill. I've seen really shallow skill from him. Guys haven't been able to hurt him. Guys haven't been able to get away with him, get away from him. So he hasn't had to do anything more than be athletic and aggressive. I don't think being athletic and aggressive is going to be enough in this fight. Because if he overextends and he doesn't put Romero away, because Romero can start kind of slow, but if he overextends and doesn't put Romero away and tires, or worse yet, he misses and Romero gets his hands on him and get a takedown, he's got problems. Because we've never seen him in this spot. And I know everybody trains for those spots, but it's different when you're training against what's usually a lower-class athlete who can't really put you in the spot you you they want you in and force you to stay in them and a guy who has the physical ability and the skill to do both of those things. We saw it against Fred, we seen it with Francis Ngannou. We've seen it multiple times. Oh, I'm training with a guy who can punch. Are you really? Oh, I'm training with a guy who can grapple. Yeah, he's a better grapple technically, but does he have the athleticism? That matters as far as the effectiveness of what the person is doing. And this is going to be the first time that Costas faced that. Ramirez, uh, Ramirez already faced that. He's already faced athletic dynamic guys. With, with multiple skill sets. He's faced versions of Paulo before. Paulo's never faced any version of, of Yo Romero. So I was I wrote about the fact that if Romero wins, I think he still doesn't have a path to the title, regardless of who wins from uh, out of uh, Robert Whitaker and Israel Adesanya. I just don't think that you can trust him in the title picture, seeing how he's missed weight twice in two title fights. I just don't think that the UFC will trust him in that situation again. So I believe that this fight is an opportunity for Costa to lose. Yeah, I mean, he's so dangerous as far as explosiveness and his and his seeming invulnerability. I mean, he's had a couple moments where he's been rocked or stumbled, but he's always recovered well. 
But the thing is, nobody's been able to extend him. And I mean, extend him, not just survive, but hang with him, extend him and make him work, not just get overwhelmed and run over. It, he's he's always had that advantage. So it, it's curious to see what happens when he faces a guy who can't, who won't just push back once, but who will continue to push back and ramp up that that level a little bit every minute of every round. Not to mention the fact that Romero is so good at setting traps and so good at controlling pace with movement and the threat of a counter or the threat of a takedown. Costa's never really had to think in a fight. I'm not saying he hasn't thought, but he's never had to think. Like a guy is hit, beating me to the punch. I have to figure out a way to get it out of this. This guy's put me on my back. I have to work my way out of it. This guy's hitting me and it's hurting me. I have to figure out a way to get in on him or to land my shots without him landing his. I think it's completely possible he could just blow through Romero, catch him cold, wipe the floor with him. But neither one of them has been active recently, and only one of them has had experience at the world-class level. And experience, to me, matters a lot. Because if Riol gets rocked or he gets tired, I know he's worked his way through it against the best in the world. If he can't get a takedown, I know he's worked his way through it against the best in the world. When his plan A didn't work, when his plan B didn't work, he was still able to compete. He was still able to win. I've never seen that with Costa. And... You can adjust skills, but the character of somebody, their mentality, that takes a long time to adjust. And no matter what skills you add to somebody, if they've never been in certain spots or they haven't been pushed in certain spots, the minute you really put them under duress, all that slick head movement and counters and footwork that they showed earlier, all that poise they showed earlier, that goes away when the rubber meets when the rubber hits the road. And Yo Romero is a good enough athlete and a durable enough guy. Unless he's falling off a cliff, he's good enough and durable enough that he can put Costa in continuously in dangerous spots. And that's when we'll see who he is and what he's about and how much he's really developed as a fighter. Good thoughts there, sir. Let's uh, turn the page and let's talk about our... There's a couple other fights that kind of jumped out to me that I know you will have some thoughts about. First, let's start with Corey Sanhagen and Rafael Asuncao. This is an interesting fight because Asuncao, he's, man, he's beaten just about everyone in this division. He is a hell of a, of a challenge for anyone young to have to face. But, Car- but Corey Sanhagen has been an interesting competitor and an interesting uh, young prospect in this division. What are your thoughts about this fight at 135, and who do you see coming out on top? Um, I want to say Sun Tzu, just because his style, he's, he's able to force guys, for the most part, into the fights he wants as far as the pacing as far as the volume, as far as the uh, the level of contact, the level of continuity and activity in the fight due to his positioning, his distance management, and the fact that when he does throw, he throws with power. He's capable, capable of putting you away or hurting, hurting you tremendously with any one shot. And if he hurts you, he can finish you on the ground with strikes or he can submit you. So there's always a certain danger in opening up against a Sun Sal, and there's always a certain danger as far as trying to press him, looking for takedowns or clinch attempts or anything of that nature. The thing about it is, Asuncao had a lot of injuries. He's been out for a while. He's, he got back into fighting, but he's not, he's not quite as quick as he used to be. He's not quite as explosive as he used to be. The power is still there, but I don't know if his durability or his ability to recover is quite as good as it used to be. And those minor adjustments, those, that half-step loss, when you use the stance he uses and you use the style he uses as far as low, low, low activity, high accuracy, that can make a lot of difference because now he can't pull the trigger on every counter. Now he can't just get out of range of every shot. The same shot that wouldn't have touched him at all, now it's starting to clip him. The same leg kick he could step back and get away from, now it's chopping his leg up. The same movement that allowed him in and out and to control pace and limit you, now he can only do that in spots. 
And when you take away that movement, you, you take away the, the platonic effectiveness, the, the uniqueness of his style, you take that away as guys go rounds with them, they start figuring them out. But when you, you've lost half a step or two, guys figure you out a little bit quicker. And the style he uses has a lot of holes as far as the boxing, the head movement, the parries, the slips, when under duress. But before he was a good enough athlete and had good enough timing where that happened. He's not that guy anymore. So if Sanhagen can kind of really put some volume on him and pick a spot to really attack his legs and his body, he's fully capable of, of jumping on a sun sow, build, sitting, getting a lead, and sitting on it throughout the, throughout the remainder of the fight. A sun sow's not a straight karate guy, but he uses some of those elements. And you saw what happened with a guy like Lyoto and other guys who use that kind of, even, even Chuck Liddell, use that distance management, that angling, that timing. Once you start declining, that's, that's, the, whole, that's whole, the foundation of what you do offensively and defensively. So once your foundation is cracked, everything else starts falling apart. And I feel like a Sun South in that point where you're starting to see the cracks as far as his defensive awareness, his ability to control the distance, his, his ability to be as efficient and accurate. You saw a little bit in the TJ Dillashaw fight. You saw it against even against Marlon Moraes. He came back and he had a chance to win the first fight. Then he came and just wiped him off the floor in the second one. And yeah, Sun South had some impressive wins, but those are against guys who weren't of Sanhagen's caliber and who didn't have the momentum that he has moving forward. I think Sanhagen can use, if he uses intelligent pressure, it makes, it makes it a point to attack the body early, especially legs and body early, and be defensively sound, I think he can establish a lead, cut into a Sun South's gas tank, and walk him down. If he's really able to master it, he can wipe him out. But the thing with the Sun South is he's got a good chin, not as good as he used to be, and he can hit for power. So you can never be too aggressive. So it's got to be poise, controlled aggression. Drown him in volume, make him work, and if he starts slowing down, just chip him up. Look to win the fight. Don't look to just you know, put a stamp on it, be super impressive. The, wins, the win is impressive enough. Look to win the fight. Look to get the job done as efficiently, as cleanly as possible. If Sandhagen can do that, he'll be fine. If he goes headhunting, I fully expect him to get KO'd at some point. You expect him to get KO'd there? That's pretty interesting to kind of think if, about. If he goes what, crazy. Yeah. Exactly. If he goes crazy. If he goes crazy in this fight there. Uh, another fight that jumped out to me is a fight between um, Sadiq Youssef and ben, uh, Benitez. What's the guy's first name? Sadiq Youssef is fighting Gabriel Benitez. This is an interesting fight to me because Sadiq Youssef is another prospect that's kind of been running under the radar, but, but um, Benitez is as well. What is your familiarity with these two men, and what do you see happening on Saturday? Um, you know, to be honest, I haven't looked a lot into these guys, except, I mean, just initially. They're just both young guys who I, I'm... I'm not, I'm not always a big fan of these matchups between young guys who've got some momentum and get, got a lot of potential because I feel like at an early stage you're knocking off one guy who knocking off two guys, one of the two who, who got potential top contender, if not world champion potential, at least athletically. And I've always liked to see guys move in, moved in a little bit differently against maybe a young guy who's got a little bit less athleticism, a little bit less potential, and you build up to fights like this. Kind of see, get a good idea of where guys are so that Either the fight happens later and you get the best version of the guy, even if they've taken some losses here or there, or the fight happens later, both guys are undefeated, and now it carries a little bit more weight because now somebody's moving into the top ten or possibly into the top five. So while I'm excited to see a fight between young, active guys, there's, there's, enough, there's enough bodies out there where you could give them good fights 
that will make them better and develop them as fighters and not get rid of a potential young, exciting guy who could possibly be a title challenger if not just a top-ranked fighter. This is going to knock one of them back a couple steps. When One of them is going to go back two or three fights. And one of them, if they win this fight, is probably going to get moved up too fast by one or two fights and, and probably pay a price for that. True, true. Let me ask you about one other fight that jumped out to me as well in the fight between Shayna Dobson and this is the women's fight on the card, the opening fight on the card, Shayna Dobson and Sabina Mazo. This is another woman. She's six and one. And I think that the UFC is looking at her as another prospect. Are you familiar with either one of these two ladies? Uh, which ones? Sabina Mazo and Shayna Dobson. Uh, Dobson, I saw her on Tough. Um, Sabina, I've seen her a little bit. Haven't haven't watched a whole lot of her because I, I haven't, just because to me she's more in the development stage. I haven't, to me, both her and Dobson have talent, but because of the depth of the, because of the depth of the division and the fact that they need bodies, I feel they're getting moved forward a little bit faster than they should be. Because I don't, I don't, I don't know that in the next three to five fights, either one of them is a legitimate title contender. And if you're at that point, I don't know that you should be in the UFC right now, given how thin the division is. Nice and nice and swift analysis there, sir. Let everyone know what are you working on this week, man, and what are you looking forward to the most in the coming week of, of MMA and sports action? Um, as far as what I'm looking forward to, I, I'm really getting really into. I'm really looking forward to see. I'm really looking at how fighters are progressing because I, I've had this theory that fighters essentially are plateauing really easily because they're in their camps. Everybody's has the same mindset because they chain in the same guy. They work with the same coaches. They work together. So it's good because you know what everybody thinks. You know where your bread is buttered. You know what to focus on. But the same instance, everybody sees things the same way. And you start seeing fighters who've had the same problem for two, three, four fights in a row, and it's not being addressed. And then the fight, that problem gets them killed in a, in a big fight or a title fight. And when people react to it, the camp or the fighter becomes very offended, like, well, these guys got me here. And that's true. But they also saw a problem that existed in you, and they did not address it, which if, I'm sorry. I know it's a hard job, but when you're a paid professional, you don't want – if somebody watches your car, you don't want to hear their excuses. If they build your house, you don't want to hear excuses. You're getting paid to do a job. So us as fans and, and you as a fighter should not want to hear excuses. So I've really been delving into – how camps and managers are treating their fighters as far as the matches they allow them to have, how they're allowing them to train, and where they're allowing them to train. Because some guys are just, like I said, they're not getting better, or they're getting better at the same things. And that works early on in your career, but as people get more tape on you, you're never going to be so good at something unless there's a huge talent gap that you're not going to be vulnerable. Now, if you're like Mighty Mouse or these other guys or Valentina to the flyweight division, you can just do what you do, and that's going to be enough. Same thing with Ronda Rousey and Bantamweight. But at some point, it's gonna the jig will be up. And when it is up, it's going to end very badly for you. And it's amazing to me how so many managers and how so many coaches routinely allow this to happen. You know, And it makes me wonder about their motivations as far as are you trying to get money, are you trying to expand your gym, or are you trying to get the best possible, turn this person into the best possible fighter they can be? Because if you are, then that's going to require you to do more than what you're doing so far for this fighter. True thoughts. Good stuff, man. There. Um, good thoughts, there, sir. Uh, there's a lot of professional wrestling content that I'm working on. A lot of MMA content. I have some grappling events. 
covering this weekend as well as we look ahead into ADCC this coming up September in about six weeks. So this is busy, busy time of the year, man. There's a lot of there's a lot of content to be made, a lot of sports to watch and keep up with, man. This is a very busy time. So, um, Shwan, man, I thank you for taking some of the time out of your evening to talk to me about mixed martial arts and to talk to people who listen to our content. Be sure to like and subscribe to everything that we're doing here. You can catch us at MMA Ratings Net on Instagram and Twitter. Also go to MMARatings.net to rate the fights and tell us how anticipating and how excited you are on the upcoming fights. And also follow me at rgarcia underscore sports and follow Schwan at the Black Jordan Green. And um, yeah, thank you again, uh, guys, and everyone have a great weekend. Y'all take it easy. Thank you for the support.